is Camilla, and you're listening to the Cat's Whisker, a time machine for all those who love rock and roll and want to know everything about it. People, stories, and the music that changed the world. In a few words, it doesn't matter whether you've lived through those years or, just like me, you've always wondered what it was like. I have loads of stories to tell and great music to play. So, let's roll! Hello everyone, welcome back to the Cat's Whisker. Today I was thinking, when people often watch videos of crazy fans running after a car where their idols were, or commit acts that could only be classified as barely legal, just to spend a little bit of time with them, I would like to be the bigger person and say that that's childish, dangerous and absolutely mental. But the truth is... If I grew up in the 60s and the slightest chance to meet the Beatles, for example, was presented to me, I would have said, give us a leg up, Lucy, and let's get through this bathroom window. So for today, I've collected some fun stories of dedication, love and absolute craziness. Let's start with the Monkees, a TV sensation that soon became a music sensation. They were supposed to be the American response to the Beatles in A Hard Day's Night and became popular right when the Beatles style was shifting towards more experimentation. One episode in particular happened at the height of their career in 1967, which for many Monkees fans at the time must have been a proper nightmare. Fan favorite Davy Jones was about to be drafted and sent to Vietnam. How could this be? We're wondering fans all over the world. He's British, some were shouting. He's the shortest man I've ever seen, were chanting others, and so on. Panic. Pure panic. Now, actually, I can't imagine how it must have been like. Your favorite group is at the peak of their career, and one of their members, the most loved one apparently, risks being sent overseas to kill people, or even worse for a fan, being killed? And I can't even try to grasp how it must have been for Davy Jones. Your career is finally taken off. It turns out that you now need to fight for a country that is not even your country. And war is always stupid in my opinion, but Vietnam is probably one of the most stupid wars that the world's ever seen. But I know you're not here for my 20 cents on world politics, and thank God for that. So I'll tell you what the Monkees fans did instead. After discovering that Davy Jones had been classified as 1A, so the most eligible type of soldier, by his draft board in California, an investigation was launched to discover how a British citizen could be sent to fight for the United States. On July 1967, Bess Coleman reports on Teen Life that being added to the Selective Service Register was standard practice even for young boys of age who were in the US for at least six months on an immigration visa. So unfortunately for the fans, these were the rules and being one of the monkeys certainly wasn't going to help. But the fans were so passionate about this issue that started protesting. The most notable protest in my opinion was held in the UK, Jones's motherland. On April the 5th in 1967, Linda Hartz led a rally that marched from Marble Arch to the US Embassy. The participants were mainly schoolgirls, singing monkey songs and holding big homemade signs that said, Leave Davy Jones alone! Don't take Davy away from us! Hands off Monkey Davy! And so on. But my favorite was the banner held by the leaders of the protest that makes me giggle a little bit. And it said, If Davy goes, we go too. So I've tried to imagine the scene. Davy Jones, running in a forest in Vietnam, trying to hide from the enemy, 
while a flock of schoolgirls were screaming and chasing after him. Pure poetry if you ask me. 2,000 fans even signed a petition addressed to Lyndon Johnson in person. And even if I want to believe that that was what made the difference, ultimately Davy Jones was exempt from military service as he was the only provider for his family in England. Some other hilarious stories though were the ones that surrounded Cliff Richard, especially when he was playing with the shadows. In his book The Dreamer, the musician tells a lot of interesting fan stories. From the time a girl published a ban of marriage in her local church, stating that Cliff Richard and her were about to get married, to a woman in Brighton who wrote a letter to him to inform him about the kid they conceived together, a woman that he obviously had never met. But my hero is this girl who mailed herself to him. Yes, you've heard me right. A girl literally put herself in a giant box and was delivered to Cliff Richard one night when he was playing with the shadows in Edinburgh. The poor thing nearly had a heart attack when he saw a person jumping out of the box asking for an autograph. But before the monkeys, the shadows and the Beatles, many musicians actually had a very big fan base. Pianist Litz was one of them, believe it or not. Then obviously Frank Sinatra, Bing Crosby, and the biggest star of the 50s, Elvis Presley. While he was starting out, something happened that has been renamed the first Presley riot. The date was May 13, 1955, and the place was the Gator Bowl, Jacksonville, Florida. At the end of the show, a group of girls followed him in the dressing room and apparently tore his clothes apart, literally stripping him naked. In an interview while he was talking about the episode, he admitted he didn't care one bit about this, but his mum Gladys was always quite shocked when she saw young girls chasing after her son. She reportedly shielded Elvis armed with a wooden broom and yelled at the girls, why are you trying to kill my boy? The girls were obviously confused and tried to explain that they just wanted to touch him. And I wonder if that explanation worked when many girls famously threw themselves at Elvis in front of their boyfriends. And that unfortunately wasn't the only time such things happened during those years. Rumor has it that years later, some guys whose girlfriends were absolutely crazy about the Beach Boys found a hotel where the band was and decided to beat the good vibrations out of them. When we think of 60s bands and fan clubs, we instantly picture screaming schoolgirls. And when we imagine a rock and roll band entourage, our minds go to groupies. And don't get me wrong, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I certainly wouldn't have said no to a young Paul McCartney. But when I read about their relationship Brooklyn teenager Bill German had with his favorite band, the Rolling Stones, I thought, hmm, I wouldn't mind that either. In his book, Under Their Thumb, how a nice boy from Brooklyn got mixed up with the Rolling Stones and lived to tell about it. He recounts how he met the British band and the story is absolutely crazy and it literally sounds like a dream. When he was 17, he loved two things, writing and the Rolling Stones. So he decided to put these two passions together and create a fanzine called Beggar's Banquet, which he wrote in his bedroom and printed at his high school. It was an era when the Stones were living in New York and German could count on all the friends who could go into nightclubs and constantly tell him what the band was doing. And even if he actually worked on this project when the Rolling Stones weren't the most popular band around anymore, he believed in his magazine and thought the Stones might have been interested as well. So, in June 1980, he waited for them outside the Danceteria. 
a club in New York where the band was promoting their new release, Emotional Rescue. When they saw a teenager actually trying to give them something rather than screaming or asking for an autograph, German handed them the fanzine and they started reading it as soon as they got in their limo. Soon enough, not only the fanzine became the Rolling Stones' official newsletter advertised on their albums, but Bill German became part of the gang. Being the Stones' friend literally became his job. A job where he would witness Keith Richards playing Buddy Holly in Ronnie Wood's kitchen while the two were having a fierce farting contest. Ah, this is the dream. The two people he bonded with the most were definitely these two, the Keith and Ronnie Wood. Bill Wyman and Charlie Watts were more private and Mick Jagger, well, I guess it wasn't really easy being Jagger's friend in the 80s if your favorite was Keith Richards. German said he was often invited to watch the recording sessions, but only the ones where Brenda, Richard's nickname for Jagger, wasn't there. Those were the first years of the Jagger-Richards fallout that still continues to this day. It must have been quite hard during that time, being so close to all that drama and trying to be objective while writing about it in a magazine for all the fans that obviously were dying to know everything they were doing. German reported that Ron Wood and Keith Richards were pretty open about everything and let German write whatever he wanted. Well, Jagger was apparently the one who was pressing the most to censor him and even yelled at him in a basement after he read something he didn't like on the fanzine. German was a stable part of their entourage for more than 15 years and kept Beggar's Banquet in operation for 17. He was essential in keeping the fans updated during the 80s and 90s and even worked with Ron Wood on his autobiography. I'm sure there must have been moments where he probably thought, what the hell am I doing here? Or others where he knew he had to keep calm and witness a lot of weird stuff or even unacceptable rock star whims. But I guess that's the price you gotta pay to work for your favorite band, which is incidentally also one of the biggest bands on the planet. So I guess that's not too bad, is it? Probably though, the most famous band for fan stories, crazy fan stories in particular, is the Beatles. I know I always try not to be too biased and I always try not to talk about the Beatles constantly, but it's impossible. We all know about the legendary Beatlemania, screaming fans and girls that would literally pass out at their concerts. Many crazy stories are quite well known, but today I wanted to give you my top three. So, third place, or the reason why the Beatles were probably scared of Dublin. If you lived in Ireland and you loved the Beatles, luck wasn't really on your side. Because despite being really close to Liverpool, the Beatles stopped playing in Ireland pretty soon. And I bet what happened on November the 7th, 1963 in Dublin had something to do with it. The Beatles played two shows at the Adelphi Cinema in Dublin. Their setlist was 10 songs long and when they finished playing the first show, the crowd, made up of 2,300 people, was hungry for more. Keep in mind that in those days, the standard encores weren't really a thing and most concerts would last around 20 minutes. The Irish crowd though really didn't want them to leave the stage. And when the fans finally decided to go home, they saw people outside queuing for the late show. And since I think the organizers weren't really used to events of that magnitude, the entrance to the building was also the only way out. So essentially, more than 2,000 people were trying to get out, whilst another 2,000 were trying to get in. That's when a fight broke out. Cars were overturned and set on fire. Other vehicles were pushed towards a group of policemen. 
and some people even ended up in hospital. For the next shows though, luckily, the management planned an alternative exit and no more incidents were recorded. Second place. One of my favorite fans ever is this girl called Jan Myers. She was absolutely crazy obsessed with the Beatles and I, I understand her. She rode her bike for 20 miles, 32 kilometers, to get to Heathrow Airport and greet the band when they got back to England. Probably not as crazy as the girls who tried to get through the baggage conveyor belt, but still. And Jan Myers is also the same person who crawled through Abbey Road sewers to listen to the Beatles record Robosol. I know what you're thinking. That's some crazy sh <laughs> First place. That's a compilation that I want to call Englishmen in New York. Obviously, everyone was crazy about the Beatles everywhere in the world, but I feel like the American fans really gave their best, especially in New York. Ringo said that once he was walking down the street and someone jumped on him and took the necklace he was wearing. He was clearly horrified and very, very scared, but our dear Ringo is quite resourceful and knew what to do to retrieve his belongings. So he went on a radio station and said, if you give my necklace back, I'll give you a kiss. And guess what? Some lady got lucky that day. In February 1964, the Beatles landed in New York to appear on The Ed Sullivan Show. That was their first time in the United States, and they certainly weren't expecting a crowd as loud as a jet waiting for them at the airport. And that also happened because some DJs gave their flights detail away on the radio. The police knew this could be a dangerous situation, so they literally escorted the band inside the airport for their famous press conference. But what is very funny to me is that one police officer in particular apparently became a star for one solid minute and instantly regretted it, I guess. He, in fact, saw 500 fans literally jump on him all of a sudden shouting, he touched the beetle. And again, I understand them. <laughs> I have a sweet bonus story, though. Whilst the Beatles were touring in America, they often forgot where they were. It's great being here in New York. Okay. Oh, is that the place? I don't know, Washington. I'm just moving so fast. And since George one day mentioned in an interview that he wasn't sure whether they were playing in Pittsburgh that night, a group of girls showed up at their concert with a cake that read, George, this is Pittsburgh, in icing. So, what did we learn today? Not to mail yourself to your idols? Probably. That trying to get through sewers to listen to an album is not that great of an idea? No, I think it's actually very clever, honestly. <laughs> but what I really want to say now is that many people in the past, and even now, they make fun of all these girls. I know that it wasn't only girls, but mainly it was girls, let's be honest that screamed, especially with the Beatles, they screamed, they were wetting themselves, they were, you know, passing out. It was mostly like a ritual, even if there was nothing to scream about and they couldn't even listen to the music when they were playing. Obviously, not only because of that, but because the PA systems weren't great at that time. Everyone always makes fun of them. But I really want to point out something. Those girls. And the girls that obviously followed Elvis first. And with the Beatles, I guess, though, it was more of a worldwide sensation because they toured 
and Elvis didn't really tour. He never even got outside of the United States. But with the Beatles, it was a worldwide sensation. And if a term like Beatlemania was coined, there is a reason. I just want to point out that those girls, the teenagers of the period, as I often say, they were the first teenagers. They were allowed to be teenagers. And those girls that for the first time they could fantasize about boys that were, you know, mythological creatures, basically. And, you know, even boys, but mostly girls could finally look at boys that weren't the same age as them. And they were singing romantic songs and they would literally tell them, I want to hold your hand, you know. And, and, and I think that this has a lot to do with sexual liberation. Those girls that were screaming for the Beatles will also be, in a few years, the first girls that used the contraceptive pill, that wore the miniskirt, and that finally were sexually liberated, and that grew up, just like me, and just like many other people, not only girls, fancying a musician in their teenage years. Those were the first girls to ever do that and I think that's very significant in those years as part of a sexual liberation movement a, a part of like the sexual revolution it all started with like some kind of like awakening that you obviously have like everyone has during their teenage years and I think that that's very significant and it really explains the period so I don't think you should really uh, overlook them or think that they are stupid. I think that that is really important for the period and many people just probably people that don't like the Beatles especially because it's it's very famous uh, what happened with the Beatles but even fan like uh, monkeys fans uh, everyone was like yeah but all their fans are school girls. That's simply not true. It obviously sounded more like that because they were louder but that doesn't mean that their music was invalid. And obviously, it's still valid today. It's still good music that we listen to. And of course, they weren't just a sensation. They lasted in years. And those people that loved them then, love them now. Also because probably they were part of a society that was changing and helped shape what they wanted and who they were. Especially for women, again, their mothers grew up knowing they could be only mothers and wives. And these girls spent their teenage years crazy about a boy band, knowing that maybe out there there was more than what they had in the bubble. There was just a few miles radium around them. And I really want to believe that this music and, and the behavior that we always make fun of, that many people mock, is actually the symptom of a society that was changing. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Let me know if you know any other story. You can follow me on TikTok at The Cat's Whisker and on Instagram at The Cat's Whisker Podcast and listen to the podcast, all the episodes on every single platform you can think of. I'm also on YouTube, by the way. And uh, I'm going to take one week break, so I'll see you in two weeks, because this week my mom is coming to visit from Italy, so I'll just spend some time with her. But don't worry, because I'll keep you updated and I will still publish on my social media. I'll see you in two weeks. Ciao!